Father, our heads are bowed and our hearts are open. We sit before you, thankful for so many things, conscious of so much good work, recognizing, Father, that only by your Spirit has anything good come from our time together. And we rest in him. And now with the word, Father, we rest in his revelation of the truth that it holds, of the application we should make with it in our lives, of all the ways, Father, in which it reflects and glorifies Christ. We pray, Father, for insight and understanding, wisdom, patience, and an open heart. Grant us these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 31. God's sovereignty is absolute. No part of life lies outside his divine will. He knows all knowledge. He controls all events. He determines all outcomes. Spurgeon said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chafe from the hand of the winnower is steered just as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. What a great perspective. There's nothing too small. There's nothing outside God's reach. But the most amazing thing about God's sovereignty is the way his control of our world masquerades as just everyday life. It's as if God is hiding in plain view. That chance meeting of a friend on the street or that unexpected check in the mail or that random thought that just comes to your mind. Those are not outside God's sovereignty. Those are working in concert with all that God is doing, just as Spurgeon put it, that march of the insect or the falling of a leaf, all of those things fall under his realm. He's especially active, though, in the lives of his people. And that's really the topic of the conversation we've been in with Genesis 31 and all that Jacob's been doing in his life here. God works through events that he prompts in the lives of his people for the purpose of encouraging spiritual development. But key to appreciating that development or to achieving that development is to appreciate that those events are not random, that they are God ordained, that there is purpose behind the everyday of life. Because through those experiences, God shows himself to us and he shows us that he is a patient, loving, teaching, correcting father who is going to see his will done through our lives and grow us in the process. We last left Jacob in the middle of one of these moments. He was leaving Haran escaping from Laban. He had made it all the way to the hill country of the Gilead, we learned. In the process of leaving, he does it deceptively. So Laban, when he discovers, chases after Jacob, catches up with him here in the hill country of the Gilead. But in the course of that chase, Laban hears from God. God appeared in a dream and told Laban, you can't do anything good or bad to Jacob. Leave him alone, in other words. Last week, we noted how interesting it was that Laban, who is an ungodly, unbelieving man, could still be controlled by the God that he doesn't know. Did you marvel at how Laban could acknowledge God's existence? He could experience fear. He could show respect. He could even obey God's instructions, the ones he received in that dream. And yet the whole time we know this is a man who does not have saving faith. It's proof once again that this man is just like the demons, according to James. They experience the reality of God, 
but they never obtain a relationship by faith. So today we're going to continue looking at God's sovereignty play out here, watching this confrontation evolve and learning the lessons that come from it. We pick up today in 31, verse 27. Let's read from there. We backed up a couple verses because I want to give you the full context. This is Laban now upset at Jacob for having left and complaining to him. In verse 27, he says, why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbre and lyre? And did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Well, then Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. And the one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban, we saw last week, he had come to discover that the household idols in his house had been taken in the course of Jacob's departure. He must have discovered it as he was in haste picking up his supplies and preparing for this trip that he was going to have to take, the several days journey, and he would have noticed they were missing. And by the way, that wouldn't have been a hard thing to note because idols in this day were usually placed in a prominent, almost sacred location in the home, like a little altar. So the moment they're gone, it's a pretty obvious thing. Like if you would take my iPhone out of my house, you know, I, I, immediately I'd notice that it was missing. He notices the idol's gone. This is actually high crime in the culture, not just the fact that it's a theft. That alone is wrong. But the crime here is of the of a severe nature because he's taken these idols. Now, you remember what we said about these idols last week? The issue with these idols is not a religious issue. This is not a question of Rachel wanting to worship pagan gods. An idol in that day and age, the family idols, were the symbols of authority within the family. They became really the keys to that family's inheritance. Yes, they were also a source for that pagan family's worship, But they had a bigger and more important meaning in the culture than just the fact that they were worshipped. Anyone who possessed the family idols, these small wood or stone figurines that the family made as their gods, anyone who had possession of them could lay claim to the authority of the family, the patriarchal authority, and they could lay claim to the inheritance once the patriarch died. So Laban is threatened here by the prospect that someone has taken possession of his family's idols And at his death, the person holding them could arrive back in Haran, present these idols as proof that they are the rightful heirs of the family inheritance, and in so doing, take all of Laban's son's land away from them. That's the real power of these idols, which also explains Rachel's desire to take them at the moment of their departure. Rachel wanted some leverage to hold over the head of Laban because she knew her dad well enough to know that he wasn't going to sit still while Jacob took off And left the family. So this is that opportunity for some leverage in the family. It was a wrong thing to do, but she did it for that reason. Now, what is Laban thinking as he arrives? When he comes to meet them in the hill country, his expectation is he will find these idols. And when he does, they become his leverage. The moment he discovers the truth that Jacob has stolen or his family has stolen from him, he can take the moral high ground. He can make the accusation that they're guilty of theft, and that's his leverage to do whatever he wants. He can kill them, 
but more likely he would have just threatened that and relented only when they agreed to return with him to Haran. So it's a very interesting, very intriguing parlor game going on here. Both sides know what's really happened, at least Rachel does. And both sides understand what's at risk, and yet everybody's going to play the game a little bit. So Laban lays out for Jacob, I know why you left. You wanted to go home and see your dad. I get it. But why did you have to steal my gods? You stole my idols. Now, Jacob's response to that is exactly what you might expect from someone in his situation. Jacob, in verse 31, he gives a truthful, if, if a bit pathetic, excuse for his surreptitious departure, his deceptive midnight departure. He says, well, I, I was afraid if I told you, you wouldn't let me take your daughters. I'd have to leave my wives behind. Now, perhaps that's true. Perhaps that's what would have happened. Laban is certainly capable of something like that. Wouldn't you agree? But nonetheless, what Jacob just said in so many words is he confessed his own lack of faith in God's power to solve just those kinds of problems. It stands to reason that if God appeared to Jacob, as Jacob testified, and told Jacob, you are to leave Haran, you are to leave Laban, it's time to go home. If God did that, then it stands to reason that God also had a plan for how to get his family out of town safely. Did he not? And if Jacob was willing to take action on the plan that God gave him, then he should have been able to take that action in full faith that God would work out all the details. God didn't need Jacob's help and got it anyway. And that help, though, comes in the familiar form of deception. Jacob deceived to try to help along a plan that God gave him. This is a ends justify the means kind of logic that says, well, since God told me to do something, I'm free to do it in whatever way necessary in order to be obedient. That's a very, very dangerous kind of thinking. It's not faith based walking. And at its very worst, it leads to the kind of ungodly ways that men will often do in order to supposedly follow God. You want to think of some clear examples out of Scripture, you don't have to think very hard. The Crusades. The Crusades were men doing things in whatever means necessary to accomplish what they perceived to be God's end. That's a means justifies the end logic. Or the Inquisition. Or Saul in persecuting the church or the Pharisees with Paul or Saul, as he was called. There are plenty of examples of men who continue to do the wrong things, thinking they're justified because they have the same ends as God has. It doesn't work that way. Jacob's approach is a little less severe than all of those examples, certainly. But bottom line, it's fundamentally the same. He is choosing to lie because he thinks that's a better way to get to what God said needs to happen. He should have done the right thing at every step. And that's my counsel to friends, to family, particularly as a parent. If you deal with what I've dealt with, which are kids who have to face the difficulties of everyday life, of standing up for who they are in Christ, but knowing that's going to create friction in their world with their peers, with, in some cases, teachers, you know, to stay Christian in a classroom that's teaching evolution, how do you do that? Well, do not let the ends justify the means, but stand for the truth Act in a way that is consistent with what God has given us, with the truth that we know, and then let God clear the path. Let him show up as he will. Let him deal with the obstacles, which he will. At the very least, let the tests come because the testing of our faith will produce endurance. And that's the whole point. But Jacob's missing the opportunity for some of these tests. So they have to come in a different way. In verse 32, 
When Jacob hears that his family is now accused of stealing idols, he responds to that accusation in verse 32. He is insulted. Remember how much the culture works to avoid any shame, any implication that there's a lack of honor. Well, Laban has dropped that pretense. Laban has just called him out in full force in front of everyone as a thief. This is the height of an insult. And it puts everybody on edge. So Jacob responds in this forceful way. He declares his innocence and then he offers to allow Laban to conduct a search. And if anything is found that is not Jacob's, the person with whom it is found will be killed. Now, that's really all Jacob could say. I've read some commentators who view this as a bit of a rash response on Jacob's part because he didn't realize, of course, that Rachel was guilty. But it's not rash in the culture. That would have been the natural response to a thief. All Jacob is doing is saying, you have the full rights under law should you find that someone in my family has done what you accuse me of doing. Now, of course, at this point, Jacob doesn't know that Rachel's done it. So Jacob assumes the search is going to show up with nothing. He assumes he'll be vindicated. And when he's vindicated, then he will have the upper hand on Laban. So then Laban proceeds to search the camp. Verse 33. So Laban goes into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids. But he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my lord be angry, but I cannot rise before you, for the manner of woman is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household idols. It's a great scene. I wish I could actually see this. I wish I could have been there to see it, because you would imagine on Jacob's face a bit of smugness, indignation, on Laban's face, maybe even a little bit of a smile with the expectation that he was going to find what he was looking for, because he knows they're there somewhere. With Rachel, a look of horror. And with the rest of the camp, a look of intense interest in what would this outcome be? What's going to happen at the end of all of this? So he goes in tent by tent, finding nothing, of course. Eventually, he arrives at Rachel's tent. Now, we know, the readers know, Rachel has the idols. So the suspense is peaking at this point. How's God going to protect Jacob and Rachel? How's he going to prevent this from turning out badly for the man and his wife who God is in covenant with? And remember, Rachel is still due to give birth to at least one more child before we get to the 12 of of Israel. So she can't die now. How's God going to fix this? Well, then Laban enters Rachel's tent. And what you have to imagine is a saddle. Now, in this day and age, saddles were not the kind of Western style saddles we see today. They were more blankets, layers of blankets formed into something that was comfortable to sit on. They may have had some leather involved as well, but the point is they're not like you think of when you think of a Western saddle. These were designed so that when you were on the animal, you sat on these things, and when you weren't on the animal, they came off the animal, they went into the tent, and they were your cushions. They were your couch in your tent. People sat on the floor traditionally, so it didn't require that they sit up off the floor. They were low. So she's just sitting on her saddle because that's what you sit on inside the tent. Now, she's also, we're told, sitting on the idols. Again, this is not a Western saddle with little pockets on the side and little zippered areas or whatever. These are just blankets. So when it says she's sitting on them, it means her bare skin. She's sitting on the idols. They're under her body. And so they're touching her, which is important because she then says she's experiencing menstruation at this point. Well, she's defiling these idols. 
which is an interesting moment in itself. It's making them unclean. So even if they had been found, they wouldn't have been useful anymore. Now, remember in this age, and I'm going to do my best here to refrain from anything unnecessarily detailed. There's no need to do that. But there is a level of detail required to understand what's going on here. In this day and age, life involved rudimentary sanitation. And women typically, therefore, refrained from doing a lot of standing or walking during this time each month because they didn't have the benefit that we have today for controlling that exposure. And they would be concerned about blood specifically being visible. So they would not walk. They would not move. They tend to stay in one place for most of that week or be attended to by other women. And so they would not want to expose themselves unnecessarily and stand. That was normal. So what she's saying here is not something strange. It would have been normal for her to say, I can't stand right now. And as a man in that culture, he would have understood what she was saying. So Laban has to respect her decision to remain seated. He's not going to second guess her on what she's saying. Now, was Rebecca lying? Well, perhaps, but perhaps not. It may just have been a convenient time, so to speak. It may have just been to her advantage. Or she may have concocted the whole story to protect herself. We don't know. I mean, either one is possible, of course. Either way, though, her actions served the purpose here of concealing her guilt because the idols are never going to be found in the situation she's in. What's interesting, though, is she used a custom of the day to trick Laban which is turnaround for him because he used a custom of the day earlier to trick Jacob into marrying two wives, if you remember the story. So now Laban comes up empty handed. He leaves the tent and immediately the shame of the moment passes from Jacob back to him because now he's shown to have made a false accusation or at least apparently that's what's now being shown. He's ashamed now by this false accusation. Now, what's so interesting about this situation is that Jacob still doesn't know Rachel is guilty, does he? Jacob thinks he's been vindicated. In Jacob's mind, he's innocent. Is Jacob innocent? No, no, he's not, but he thinks he is. He has suffered humiliation watching Laban methodically search the camp, and the whole time he stood there confident no gods would show up. Now that he assumes he's been proven right, in reality, there's no innocent party here. Everyone's guilty. And everyone thinks themselves in the right. Now you're looking at God's sovereignty in full display. Because over the course of these relationships, Laban has deceived Jacob. Jacob has deceived Laban. Now Rachel has deceived both of them. And with each step of sin, God turned those circumstances into godly outcomes, ones that he intended. And as the deception comes to a climactic end now... God's purpose in all of this becomes evident or starts to become evident. God is grooming and growing Jacob here. And the process is now just starting to come to the surface. Jacob has endured 20 years of misery with this guy. Brought about, if you remember, by his own sins originally in the family, which forced him to come to Laban. And just as he thought he had escaped this man after 20 years of suffering under Laban's deception and dishonesty, he's almost home free. He can see the mountains of his homeland. And as he sits there, Laban shows up and imparts one more misery, one more indignity on him and his family. This is the proverbial last straw. And Jacob has had it up to here. Now look what he does in verse 36. Having reached the boiling point, all of these lessons actually start to make a difference in who Jacob is. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? Where is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? 
Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I've served you for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. And so he rendered judgment last night. I love passionate speeches in Scripture. All right, this is a passionate, angry Jacob here. This is a man who has a lot to be angry about. He begins by asking rhetorically, All right, so what is my sin? You pursued me all this way to embarrass me in this way. Show me everything in my camp that's not mine. Bring it here right now. Well, you know it's rhetorical, right? He knows he hasn't found anything. His whole point is to say you haven't found anything. He's talking really plainly. What I love about this moment is all of the cultural stereotype, the playing of games with honor and saving face, the attempt to say things in a roundabout way, all that's just gone away for the moment. Laban, you called me a thief. Now I'm calling you a cheat and a lying cheat on top of it all. And it's all out in the open. And after he recounts this life he's had in Haran, you start to hear him testifying to God himself. He starts in the recounting by saying, I served you in faithfulness. I served you in the way I should serve you. I served you for 20 long years in keeping with all our agreements. I did my job well. I endured in difficult circumstances. I ensured all the goats, all the sheep didn't miscarry. And that's a demonstration of his skill and his dedication. And then he mentions some things that are really interesting. He says, you've treated me wrongly despite everything I've done. He says, whenever there was a wild beast that killed a goat or a sheep in the field, I bore that loss myself. He's referring to a cultural standard. In that day and age, the shepherds were not responsible to the master for animals that were killed by wild animals. You could take the carcass of the dead sheep or the dead goat that had been killed by, let's say, a lion, and you could drag that dead carcass back to the master and say, hey, this isn't my fault. Here's proof. And then the master would absolve the shepherd for any responsibility for that animal. He wouldn't have to pay for it. Jacob says, you made me pay for those. And I did. That's thievery. That's actually Laban stealing from Jacob because that's not the custom. Furthermore, Jacob says, I never ate any of your animals. In the custom of the day, the shepherd was allowed to kill an occasional goat or lamb to eat as his food, sort of the food when you're out in the field. Jacob says, I never even took advantage of that opportunity. And then it says, you required me to bear losses myself, which means if a thief took it, I had to pay you back for the thief. That was not something a shepherd normally did. I mean, Laban has been a terrible guy to work for. He's been the worst boss you can imagine. You can't trust him. He's trying to take advantage of you at every turn. He doesn't let you have any of the normal advantages that come with the job. His whole intent is to enslave you. That's what Jacob's dealt with for 20 years. In summary, Jacob worked hard, did everything in honor, everything according to his word. And Laban did everything in dishonor and with the intent to win some unfair advantage. How would you like to have worked 20 years for someone like that? Finally leave the job, have your boss track you down, and confront you claiming you stole the stapler. (laughs) And after the search, you say, okay, you know what, buddy? 
Right? There's some things I need to get off my chest. That's that's Jacob at this point, right? God love him at this point. So what does Jacob conclude in this? Jacob himself is letting something out of him that he's held in for a long time. And as the words come out of his mouth, and if you've ever found yourself in somewhat of a similar situation where what you're saying, you you hear it almost like you're outside your own body. You start to to think it out as you say it and you realize, yeah, you know, yeah, you treated me pretty bad. Yeah, I didn't even think about that till right now. You start to hear it again as if it's new. Jacob's in that moment. And what he's hearing is he's saying all this stuff is how did I end up with anything at all? And in verse 42, he says, if the God of Abraham and Isaac had not been for me, I'd have had nothing to show for the last 20 years. I had nothing. Now, you can fairly assume, I think, that no man has ever outsmarted Laban before this time. Just given what we've seen him do, I'll bet you that this is the first time that Laban has met his match. He's a true scoundrel who takes advantage of everybody in every way he can. And yet he found no way to best Jacob. This is a first for him. And when Jacob had finally had enough and left him and then Laban tracked him down and chased him down and and then tried to destroy him through this last encounter, Jacob finally came to a recognition. God has been the only thing standing between me and ruin, knowing your efforts. And he says, God has seen my affliction. I love this at the end of verse 42. He says, God saw my affliction and my hard work, and he rendered judgment in my favor. And at the end of verse 42, he says, God rendered judgment against you last night. In the Hebrew there, literally it is, God rebuked you yesterday. What that's referring to, if you know, is is that dream that Laban had on the road. He got it the night before he caught up. What Jacob is saying is, you're the one who told me that God appeared to you. You're the one who told me that God said you can't harm me. Now I understand. God rebuked you last night because he's seen what you've done to me and he's seen the faithfulness in which I served you. And he's now paying back you for your sin and me for my faithfulness. Jacob just made a fundamental mistake in his understanding of what's happening. Did you catch that? Jacob believes he is prevailing in this struggle with Laban because he worked hard and he did the right things. And that Laban is... Not getting what he wants because Laban has done bad things and God is passing judgment on Laban for those bad things. That's what Jacob just concluded, is it not? That's not how it works. Is that how God's favor works? The people who do good things are getting all the good things and the people who do bad things are getting all the bad things. So if you and I are sharing in the good things of God, then it stands to reason all of us are the good people. Unfortunately, I know some of you. And you know me. God is not favoring Jacob because Jacob is a man who does the right things. Would you agree with that? (laughs) And God has chosen to leave Laban at a disadvantage. Yes. But is it simply because Laban is a dishonest man? Well, if you're confused about how to answer those questions, I want you to remember how we got here in the story. Jacob deceived Laban when he left. Rachel stole idols. Ironically, this is probably the first time in the relationship of Jacob and Laban, in which Jacob is entirely wrong and Laban is entirely right. This is entirely opposite of the way Jacob perceives the moment. Jacob doesn't know his wife stole the idols, but she did. Jacob's conveniently forgetting that he deceived Laban. He did. And Laban has actually got the law on his side at this moment when he chases after Jacob and says, you stole my stuff, I want it back. But look who God's protecting Folks, it's not pay for performance. It's not salvation by works. 
It's not God's favor when you do the right things. It's not favor if he only gives it to you when you earn it. It would be called wages. And the wages of our life is not God's favor. According to scripture, it is death because our life is not but sin. God instead is protecting Jacob here, just as Jacob stated. But the basis for that is not performance, but grace. It's God's grace. He's taken an important step forward, but he's not all the way there yet. He understands something about the God he worships. He knows God works in his life. God has never left him. God brings good outcomes because God has shown that in his life. He's picked up on that. But he has this false understanding of why. And he has an overdeveloped sense of self-righteousness. Because he is ignorant to his own sin, so much so that he sees his current circumstances as reward for behavior. Rather than the grace that it is. Jacob, by the way, is a great picture of the nation. And he is a picture of Israel as a nation in several ways we have in Scripture for him. One of those ways is right here. The nation of Israel, throughout its existence, has thought itself favored for performance. That's its historical view, even though that's not the biblical view. They favor works over faith. They favor law over grace. They favor the externals over the internals, appearance before reality. That's the reason Jesus can look at the Pharisees and say, you know, you're like cups clean on the outside with filth on the inside. You don't get it. You think it's about the external, not the internal. That's a thinking that we all have in some way or in some sense. But it seems to be very strong within the nation of Israel. And I wonder if it doesn't start with Jacob himself. Jacob is simply the first in a family that tends to think God pays for performance. And in verse 32, next chapter we study, God will take this extraordinary step, you'll see with me at the end of that chapter, of appearing to Jacob in a theophany, which is a physical form, that's intended to impress upon Jacob that his view of God's mercy needs to change. And that he's wrestling against the wrong person. But for now, let's finish 31 briefly, and it is going to be a brief ending. I want you to watch at how God's wisdom and sovereignty turns all of this sin to good for those who love him. Verse 43, then Laban replied to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters and the children are my children and the flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom you have born? So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Jagar Sahudutha, but Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. And therefore it was named Gilead. Gilead means heap. And Mizpah, for he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, behold, this heap and behold, this pillar, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm. And you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. 
Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal. And they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned to his place. Well, briefly, the whole scene there is simply the inaugural moment of a covenant. These two men just entered into an agreement. Rather than detail the the nature and the manner of the covenant, we've done that before. I don't think we need to repeat that. You can see some of the elements there with the meal and the and the heap and so on. But what's most important for us as we finish is why. Why did this end their moment and why did Laban ask for this covenant? I want you to remember covenants are powerful agreements. They were binding to each party. They required mutual obedience and the penalty for failure to keep a covenant was death. There weren't levels of covenants. Covenant meant death if you did not keep it. That's why the word covenant means in Hebrew to cut, meaning cut up pieces of meat. So Laban is seeking here an agreement. The purpose of the agreement, the purpose of the covenant, mutual non-adversaries. I won't come after you and you won't come after me. And in fact, he says, I just want to put a line here in the sand. You won't cross to my side. I'll never cross to your side. Then he adds this interesting additional requirement. You can't take additional wives. Now, that sounds really magnanimous, but there's more to it than that. Why does he insist on these rules? Well, remember the household idols? Though Laban couldn't find them, he knows they have them. And so he knows they're still a threat. What he's afraid of is that some future day, Jacob or one of Jacob's descendants will step across that line, holding those idols, go all the way to Haran and present them and take control of Laban's inheritance. So the whole point of it is for Laban to say, I don't want you to ever come back into my land. And that way, I'll never have to worry about my idols being used against me. And what about the wives? Well, if Jacob had taken new wives, potentially then he could have added to his household in ways that would have allowed others to inherit his property and then take the idols and go across the line as well. Because the agreement was only binding to the Jacob of the day, to Jacob and his descendants within the family of his day. New wives, new family, new family, not bound by that agreement. They could inherit and one day perhaps cross the line. The whole point of this is to protect his property. By agreeing to never take an additional wife, Jacob is being prevented here from ever taking a wife from among the Canaanites. And that was something God wanted for Jacob. So God is at work here in Laban's terms to ensure that Jacob remains apart from the Canaanite people. Next week, we'll see Jacob prepare to face his latest and greatest adversary, only to discover he's been fighting in the wrong way from the start. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for grace. I thank you for the story of Jacob because I see in his life a man who does so many of the same things that I am prone to do and that I know many of us would also agree we do. And yet, Father, I see you and the way you supported and guided and protected him as such a clear example of faithfulness and even in the situations in which our sin would deserve something far less. Thank you for the grace that you give, for the confidence that comes with knowing you are faithful. Help us, Father, to live according to what we've been given so that your grace, Father, would not be taken advantage of. Continue to grow us and build us in the body of Christ and in the likeness of Christ. And if it be your will, with more to enjoy what we have here as well. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.